Tour de, de Slovaquie, il avait remporté. Just as Matthew Van der Poel pulls over after taking a long turn at the front, the bell rings for the final lap. Eh oui, eh oui, il avait remporté le Tour du Loup, une des manches de la Coupe de France. And Van der Poel is in a small group of riders that have a gap of 47 seconds on the rest of the field and 13.9 kilometers to race to be crowned the 2019 World Road Race Champion. Moscon, Trenton, Peterson, Kung and Matthew Vanderpol were working together well. This powerhouse group would produce the eventual winner, but just over one kilometre after hearing the bell, with 12.8 kilometres to go, Vanderpol moves over to the right-hand side of the road and he looks down as if he has trouble holding his head up. Oh, Matthew Vanderpol, what's he doing? He's lost! He's lost, Vanderpol! So that's the big surprise! On parlait de ses défaillances. Vanderpol was out of the race. Bonked, blown, bazookered. That's not even a cycling term. Anyway, the point is, it wasn't his fitness that let him down. It was simply not eating enough. It was something that was preventable and outside of his endurance base. And that's what we're looking at today. How to finish long rides strong. And in our case, how to finish strong, even if you don't have the time to train your endurance as much as a pro. Yo-ho, and welcome back to Ride Better, Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, finishing strong on those long, hard rides without the necessary endurance by working on positioning, both on the bike and in a group, pacing and nutrition can get you most of the way there while working on your endurance training on the side. Plus, heat training revisited a new study that gives us a new protocol, and I talk about how I plan to roll this out to the right athletes. This popped into my inbox this week, and I thought it was worthy of a discussion. I was registered for the LETARP at the end of next month, and on the 28th of November, I'm still going to do the course, 136 kilometers with an elevation of 2,770 meters, with a few mates who are very strong riders who manage to crank out 150 to 200 kilometer weekend rides. I just don't have the time for that with the kids. My aim is to not let them drop me on the climbs and make sure I can get to the end with them. We'll do the same course as planned, and they're riding at 32, 33 kilometers for those distances, but not as much elevation. So reading this, it got me thinking, that's five weeks away. Enough for one good training block, but not enough to build a solid base from. So other than training, what can you do to complete and finish strong in these long, hard rides when you don't have the time to train to improve endurance? Here's the three things that I came up with. Positioning, both on the bike and in the group, pacing, and nutrition. These are things that not only can you train, you can train them while at the same time doing the endurance work. And that's kind of the plan for the next five weeks. Let's start with positioning, which really means optimizing your aero position and covers drafting. And starting with drafting, studies have shown that drag reductions between 27 and 50% for riders that are drafting. With the exact reduction depending on a number of variables, the size and on the bike position of the rider in front, likewise with rider drafting, the distance from the wheel in front the direction and the strength of the wind, and more. In short, drafting provides a considerable effect, but its magnitude depends on many factors. Taking a closer look at some of these studies in this space, we can understand how we benefit from sitting in the slipstream in different situations and where drafting is most effective. 
In a genuine peloton, you should be able to reduce the drag you experience by up to 44% when riding in a group, assuming you've positioned yourself correctly in the bunch. And that position is, depending on the size of the group, usually right in the middle of the bunch with riders in front, behind, and to either side of you. But if it's a group of friends, it gets a little harder. You will be able to suck a wheel, and while there's no clear advice from the studies out there, you can get up to 38% in drag reduction when you are within 40 centimeters from the rider in front. If you find yourself riding in a single line, a 2013 study found that in a four-rider pace line, the lead rider's drag is reduced by about 2 or 3% compared to if they were riding solo. <laughs> That's interesting. But you don't want to be that rider. So it goes like this. The second rider in line experiences a reduction of about 27%. The third and fourth see drag reductions of approximately 35%. So stick to the back. Another factor is when climbing. And it's this simple. At approximately 16 kilometers per hour, best air resistance is negligible and drafting becomes nearly meaningless. Something else that came up was a blog post by Alex Simmons where he did an experiment that concluded if you wish to ride alongside your buddy, it might cost you approximately 10 watts, give or take. If speed is of the essence, then ride in single file. You'll both go quicker that way. Now, at some point, you'll probably have to put your nose to the wind. And what positions are best when it comes to that? So let's go through road positions, assuming you're moving at approximately 30 kilometers an hour. And I'll give the recommendations based on the wattage that you'll be saving. Starting on the top of your bars as a baseline, if you move to the hoods in a standard position, you can save around 3 watts of power. If you then move from being on the hoods in a normal position to an aero hood position, which is basically forearms parallel to the ground, shrugging shoulders, lowering the head, tucking elbows in front of the knees if your fit allows, and tucking your knees in is 33 watts faster. This is also faster than the drops because more of your arms are exposed to the air, and while it's 28 watts faster than the hoods, it's about 5 watts slower than the aero hood position. And I want you to note here that it's a more stable position being in the drops, and this means it can be maintained longer over a ride, so it might actually be better. But that's not to say that you shouldn't find every opportunity to get into an aero hood position. A couple of finer points here, angling your hoods inwards will reduce drag further, as will riding with puppy paws, as some call it, where you just rest your forearms on either side of the stem, and this is quicker still, as you are effectively just on non-existent aero bars. But I can't recommend this one, simply because it might get you banned from events you do. So essentially, riding on the hoods in the aero hood position for a few minutes at a time is ideal, but drops for longer periods will give you the most benefits. And while we're at it, here's a couple of clothing considerations. And I'm not sure if this one bugs you as much as it bugs me when I'm watching pro riders riding up a climb, down a hill, wherever. But if you have a rain cape that's unzipped, it's 16 watts slower than having it zipped up and 30 watts slower than not having one at all. Ouch. So these two combined could save you a lot of watts over five hours. And the way I'd work them into training is allocating a progression of time in the most effective positions, namely the aero hood position and in the drops. Sounds simple, but if you aren't used to these positions, and if you can't manage a consistent progression, then you're looking at adding some supplemental trunk exercises to strengthen that area. Now, onto nutrition. Gut training to handle a boatload of carbs. As a reminder, we start with 
60 grams of carbohydrates per hour, and this is because glucose is handled by an enzyme called SGLT1 that can only handle 60 grams of glucose per hour. If you go over this, then it just won't be processed. It just backs up in the gut and maybe you'll feel sick. But there is a way to add another 30 grams of carbohydrates through fructose, and that's through the doorway or the enzyme that handles fructose, and that enzyme's called GLUT5. So in total, you get a maximum of 90 grams of fuel into your blood supply. There are reports of more being used with special combinations, but getting to 90 grams is a great start and really will make a difference come the big ride when you get to the finish. In practice, this looks like one gel. Most gels are sort of 25 to 30 grams of carbs and half of a sports drink if it's mixed up right in one bitten, or you can drink a whole bottle of sports drink if it's mixed up the right way. You could have two gels, one every 30 minutes and wash it down with water after the sports drink is done. Other than that, there is the energy sink, which will be helpful because the ride will be over the magic three and a half hour mark. And this is part of introducing some fat and some protein into your system. And this doesn't work for everyone and it does take a bit of time to get used to it, but the energy sink burns slower throughout the back end of your ride. So throwing a peanut butter sandwich in there or a pastry will also help you in these long rides. Working your way up to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour is another training progression, as is maintenance once you're there. So start where you are and keep adding carbs. And this is one of those things that's important to do for every ride, even the short ones. And the final part here is pacing. Pacing is a tricky one when you're riding with mates, or really at any time, because there's so much ego wrapped up in it. But for you to survive, it will be about treating this ride as much like a race as possible and without losing friends by being a wanker. And depending on the dynamic of the group, you could be upfront and just tell them you're gonna be sucking wheels all day rather than making excuses. But either way, you will need to survive by measuring your effort and choosing when you go to the front. The key here is accepting that you need to conserve energy and can't waste energy in the early part of the ride. So ride wheels, don't challenge for the top of climbs, and you'll find yourself with more energy at the end of the ride. Doing a simulation ride will also give you an idea of your limits against your time to exhaustion while you're pushing the hills at tempo or sweet spot, but being disciplined early is best than holding on for the rest. This part is trained with good old steady state efforts and the best simulation rides possible with the time you have available to train. And with that, let's see how you go. It's time once again for the science of fast. The science of fast. The segment of the show where it's 100% science and 100% fast. I can't promise it's 100% fast, but it sounds good. And this time, this time we're talking about heat training. I thought I'd take another pass at heat training as the science is evolving every six months or so at the moment. And of course, in the last show, we talked about a new wearable to measure your core temperature. And this is my coaching process for updating the heat protocol based on the 2015 study that I was using, which I last reconfirmed as my heat protocol in 2018. Also, I'm having this conversation with an athlete at the moment, specifically around training strategy when the options in front of us are a racing block and heat training or an altitude block. With only the time and resources to pick one option, we're going for heat training and racing. With limited racing this year, it's important to get some race time in the legs before the big goal. The heat training is there as an optimization because you have to compromise the quality of training in some way when you're choosing heat training. So as soon as it starts to impact racing or training, it's simple, it's out. 
And also note that we're going for heat training even in light of a very recent paper called Heat versus Altitude Training for Endurance Performance at Sea Level, concluding that when compared to heat training, current evidences support altitude training as the choice for the clearest beneficial impact for endurance trained athletes. I'd say personally, the biggest challenge with heat training is that there's no doubt that the heat acclimatization will enhance performance in hot conditions. And the results of the 2010 study were impressive. These are 10 days of training in 104 degree Fahrenheit, 40 degree Celsius heat boosted. The cyclists VO2 max by 5% and improved their one hour time trial performance by 6%. But there is still no conclusive evidence that this will consistently translate to cool conditions as well. And this is an ongoing debate, which I'll talk about in a minute. But first, who should try heat training? If you're short on time or you haven't maxed out your physiological capacity, stick with training and simply train more, focus on the basics, recovery, and even weight loss for performance gains. It's as simple as that. Once that's done, come and talk to me. And now, after all that, let's get to it. Heat training aka budget-friendly altitude training, is all about adding another form of stress to your system. In this case, it's heat and can be applied as either active, so hot while riding, or passive, post-ride, some other time. And like any training out there, there are specific variables we have to play with for heat training. Those are time, temperature, and frequency. And before we look at the developments in the science, it's important to frame this as another form of training and additional stress on the body, just like more volume or interval, so you can't simply pile it on. And we are looking for incremental improvements in tolerance over time. And this is where the core wearable becomes so important in measuring the impact of the heat environment on the body and is a warning about dangerous levels. The goal of heat training is to elevate core body temperature from a typical 37 degrees Celsius to 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit to the range of around 37.3 to 39 degrees Celsius, which is 99 to 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Anything above that, you're in the danger zone. Now, the most recent study that sparked my interest is from a research team led by Carlsten Lumbi and at Inland University of Applied Sciences in Norway. Lundby is often a critical voice in heat and altitude training. And of course, if you listen to this show a lot, you will know their new study published in Experimental Physiology asked this central question. Do hemoglobin mass and red blood cell volume increase in elite cyclists in a hot environment compared to a control group at normal temperature? The answer, it turns out, is yes. Heat boosts levels of oxygen-carrying hemoglobin in your blood just like altitude training. Well, kinda. One major factor in endurance performance is how quickly you can transport oxygen from your lungs to your muscles via your blood. Specifically, it's the hemoglobin in your red blood cells that grabs the oxygen. Altitude training generates more hemoglobin as a response to the thin air. Heat training works differently. It works by increasing the volume of plasma in your blood, an increase of up to 20%, which is pretty big. Notably though, Plasma is the part of the blood that doesn't include hemoglobin red blood cells. So it's not immediately obvious what the performance benefits are in all conditions. Well, other than hot conditions where there is a performance boost because the extra plasma volume shunt excess heat to your skin, amongst other things. But remember, but remember when I mentioned that there is still no conclusive evidence that this will consistently translate to cool conditions as well. 
There's an ongoing debate on whether more plasma will increase your endurance under moderate weather conditions. There's a bunch of different theories floating around, but Lungbi has been critical of these and even wrote a paper in 2015 arguing against the performance benefits of heat training in moderate conditions. That's why it's interesting when a study on heat training by him pops up. And I'm not going to go into a deep dive into Lungbi's hypothesis, but the gist of his hypothesis is the idea that your kidneys are constantly monitoring hematocrit, trying to keep it in a normal range. If your hematocrit has a sustained decrease, the kidney responds by producing EPO to trigger the production of more hemoglobin-rich red blood cells. Unlike the rapid increase in plasma volume, this is a slower process, and Lungbi and his colleagues figure it could take about five weeks. And he now has a couple of studies showing promising results, the latest of which is doubly important to our cyclists as it recruited elite cyclists. They were training about 10 hours a week during a five-week study, and into that regime, they incorporated five afternoon sessions of 50 minutes at approximately 45% of FTP on their own bikes on good old compu trainers. The 11 cyclists in the heat group did those sessions in approximately 37.8 C or 100 Fahrenheit and 65% humidity. The 12 cyclists in the control group did the same sessions at approximately 15.6 degrees C or 60 degrees Fahrenheit and 25% humidity, aiming for the same subjective effort level. During the heat sessions, the cyclists were limited to half a litre of water to ensure mild dehydration, which is thought to be one of the triggers for plasma volume expansion. The key outcome measure, total haemoglobin mass increased 893 to 935 grams in the heat group, a significant 4.7% increase. In the control group, haemoglobin mass stayed essentially unchanged, edging up by just half a percent. In the physiology and performance test that included VO2 max, lactate threshold, and a 15-minute time trial, there was no statistically significant differences between the groups, but several outcomes did show small to intermediate effect sizes, favoring the heat group. For example, the heat group increased power output at lactate threshold by 2.8%, while the control group decreased by 0.4%. Also, the heat group increased average power during the 15-minute time trial by 6.9%, while the control group improved by 3.4%. These results are encouraging. They don't prove Lungbi's hypothesis about diluted blood stimulating more APO is what causes the changes, but they suggest that something good seems to happen after about five weeks. So what are the key takeaways and the protocol? The key outcomes here show that five times a week for five weeks is where the magic starts to happen. The low intensity is actually helpful in not overloading the system too much, but again, monitoring here is key to see how the athlete is recovering or you're recovering. As for how I'll implement this, it comes down to what, when, and how. What? No need to deviate from the protocol used in this study. So five times 50 minute sessions at 45% of FTP for five weeks. This shouldn't add too much stress or extra stress and can pretty much be incorporated into any high volume athletes training without too much compromise. Recovery is yet to be seen under heavy loads, so that's something to monitor. When to schedule it in the overall training program? A useful paper published in the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism has the following recommendation on periodization of heat training within a season and the most useful takeaways. And what I will prescribe is the main five-week block, seven weeks prior to taper and perform weeks. 
While active heat exposure during the taper may help the benefits of heat acclimation, it may also interfere with the goal to reduce the overall training load. Passive heat exposure, this is a sauna or hot bath, following a training session in cool climate, may be preferred during the taper. And this looks like 40 degrees Celsius or 104 Fahrenheit of immersion of the entire body, including the hands and the feet, for 40 minutes after sessions. Finally, given the risk of losing some of the exercise adaptions, maintaining some easy exercise sessions in the heat during the taper period may help to better maintain adaptions prior to competing in the heat. And the how, again, it's like I'm advertising the core wearable here, but it allows for more flexibility in the strategy for this type of training. For example, the study mentioned uses a climatic chamber to control temperature and humidity. And this can, to a similar extent, be done by monitoring temperature in an enclosed space, like a steamy room or a warm enclosure, or closing the doors and maybe turning the heating on. But having a monitor of real-time body temperature, you can do other things like riding outside when it's kind of hot, but using more clothes and regulating the temperature that way. And this could be anything from wearing a sauna suit to a few extra layers of clothing on a hot day. And, phew, we got there. It's pretty dense stuff, but the recommendations are reasonable for those looking for every possible edge. And that's all I've got. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. <laughs>